In 2009, President Obama chose Michael Punk to serve as the Deputy United States Trade Representative, U.S. Ambassador, and Permanent Representative to the World Trade Organization in Geneva. Punk was confirmed for the position in 2011 by the U.S. Senate. As a high-ranking federal employee, Punk isn't allowed to publicize his side projects. However, that didn't stop Hollywood from turning his first novel, which was published in 2002, into an Academy Award-winning masterpiece. Within a month of the release, The Revenant almost doubled the $135 million it cost to make, on its way to an amazing three wins at the 2016 Academy Awards. After 36 feature films and four nominations that came up without a win, actor Leonardo DiCaprio finally earned his first Oscar with his 37th film, The Revenant. While the movie was primarily based on Punk's novel, the story is based in truth. So what is the true story behind The Revenant? I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. Both Punk's novel and Hollywood's blockbuster movie The Revenant are based on the story of a man named Hugh Glass. Born in the early 1780s near Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Glass had a knack for telling stories that captivated his audiences. Because of this, a lot of historians have had a hard time determining exactly what's true and what's fiction. While the oral history of Glass's tales can't always be taken at face value, most of the ones we know today have been verified by historians who use documents written by others who have mentioned Glass in their own writings. Much of the early life of Hugh Glass isn't really known. In fact, we don't really know much until his early 40s when he shows up in the memoirs of a trapper from New Mexico named George C. Yount. Yount recalled meeting and befriending Glass And right away, Yount is captivated by Glass's stories. We can tell this because Yount spent the time to recount some of Glass's stories in his own memoirs. According to Yount, Glass's first story came from 10 years before the two met. So just to put this in perspective, the only documentation we have of this is in Yount's memoirs, retelling a story that Glass had told him that happened 10 years prior. So we're relying on someone writing down what someone else remembers happening a decade before. As you can imagine, this means taking the story with a little grain of salt. Still, it's easy to see why Yount was fascinated by his stories. According to Glass, he was a sailor around 1817 when the famous French pirate Jean Lafitte seized his ship. As was often the case, he was given a simple choice. Join Lafitte's band of pirates or die. Glass, who really wasn't fond of dying, decided not to do that this time and agreed to join the pirates. For the next year, Glass lived in what would become Texas at a small pirate colony on Galveston Island. He recounted to Yount the stories of cruel murders and horrible deeds done by the pirates on a daily basis. Now, Yount believed Glass to be a God-fearing man and obviously believed Glass to be truthful when he experienced regret for the savage acts that he'd committed as a pirate. Seeking a chance to escape the crew, Glass enlisted the help of a fellow crewmate who was also fed up with the life of piracy. 
They took a chance and jumped ship one evening when good fortunes left the two of them alone on the ship while the rest of the crew was ashore. So together, the pair swam for about a couple of miles until they hit the shore. For a while, they lived near the shore and survived by eating various sea creatures, even, according to Glass, some poisonous ones. When they thought that they weren't going to be followed by the fit and they were satisfied that the pirates weren't going to chase them, they made their way inland to avoid getting captured by the Karankawas tribe, which was uh, Native Americans who lived in the area. Now, without a map of the area, the two wandered around for a long time, and history doesn't really have any account of exactly how long, but Glass estimated that their trip was about 1,000 miles deep into Native American territory in what is now central United States. Their good fortune would run out when the two of them were found by the Pawnee, another tribe of Native Americans. And Glass had to watch while his friend was burned alive at the stake while being pierced with slivers of burning pine trees at the hand of the Pawnee. As horrifying as this must have been, especially since Glass had to have assumed that he was next, history now tells us that this sort of ritual was actually fairly common at the time for the Pawnee. They believed such human sacrifice would help ensure a bountiful crop. The weather is getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Now, when they came for him next, when they came for Glass, it was the Pawnee chief whose privilege it was to pierce him first. Rather than struggling after just seeing his friend burned alive at the stake, Glass shocked the chief by reaching into his pockets and pulling out a brilliant red powder. It was vermilion and incredibly powerful to the Pawnee. Handing it to the chief, he bowed and said his final farewell. After a moment's pause, the chief took this as a sign from the gods and decided not only to spare Glass's life, but to adopt him as his own son. He lived with the Pawnee for the next couple of years, and while he did have a wife, unlike in Hollywood's version of the story, there's no proof that Glass had any children during his time with the Pawnee. In 1822, the events in Hollywood's blockbuster movie started to unfold as Glass joined the fur trade when he took a job from a newspaper ad placed by General William Ashley of the Missouri Militia and his business partner, Andrew Henry. 
Together, they founded the Rocky Mountain Fur Company in St. Louis, Missouri, and they were looking for 100 men. Essentially, these 100 men, which would become known as Ashley's 100, joined the company's inaugural expedition, including some who would earn fame as mountain men outside of Hugh Glass, such as Thomas Fitzpatrick. Not to be confused with Tom Hardy's character in the movie, John Fitzgerald. That's a different person. Um, some others who would go on to earn fame, Jim Bridger, Jedediah Smith, um, the latter of whom would eventually buy Ashley's fur training company from him. For this expedition, though, it was one that would ensure people for all time would remember the name Hugh Glass. Such expeditions were common for fur companies at the time, and many are credited as being responsible for discoveries in the United States, such as the Green River Valley in western Colorado and Utah Lake, just south of the Great Salt Lake. The purpose of this expedition, though, was to travel to the source of the Missouri River and work trapping animals for their fur for up to three years. As the expedition made their way along the Missouri River, they encountered the Arikara tribe. This is a Native American tribe who had farms in Missouri. Now, the Arikara tribe had earned a reputation at the time as being a rather unpredictable group. They'd often use their knowledge of the land to bully, rob, or even murder traders as they passed by. On May 30, 1823, Ashley went into the Arikara tribe village in order to start negotiations in hopes that they could work peacefully in their lands. But he also needed horses, as they had lost many of theirs on the trek so far. Unfortunately, the Arikara tribe weren't really in a good mood. Another trading company had apparently passed by recently and had a skirmish with the tribe, leaving many of their warriors dead. Ashley tried to convince them that he and his men had nothing to do with that battle, and in an attempt to appease them, he offered them some gifts. Now, most historians think that while Ashley offered the gifts as a way of appeasing them, in turn, the Arikara saw this as Ashley actually acknowledging responsibility for the deaths of their warriors and offering the gifts as payments for the lost warriors. Now, this could prove to be a vital rationale for what would soon happen. When the trade discussions turned to the horses that the expedition needed, the smooth-talking Ashley managed to make a pretty good deal. He traded 25 muskets and ammunition for 19 horses. Now, Ashley left the village in good spirits as he had gotten exactly what he hoped for, or so he thought. Rather than continuing on and confident that he had nothing to fear from the Arikara tribe, Ashley and his men decided to stay put to wait out a storm that had just started to brew. A couple of days later, on June 1st, all hell broke loose. The violence started early when some Arikara warriors tried to kill Ashley while he was sleeping on his boat in the Missouri River. Now, he managed to scare them off, but his attention quickly shifted when screams came from the beach. On shore, as it turns out, the Arikara had caught two of Ashley's men who were trying to sneak into the tribe's village and meet some of the women there. Now, only one of the men, a man named Edward Rose, managed to make it back to tell the tale. First blood had been shed, so one of the two had been killed. It was still dark when a single Arikara man called out to Ashley's men who were camped on the beach. Cautiously, the lone warrior approached 
the men. Now, he offered to return the body of the man who had been killed in the village. He was a man named Aaron Stevens. In return, he wanted a single horse. After some discussion and debate, Ashley and his men agreed to this deal. The Arikara men left and returned sometime later without the body, explaining there was too badly mangled. There really wasn't enough left of the body to return. The Arikara warrior left and an upset Ashley stood there on the beach with his men and a horse. As the sun rose, Ashley and his men were still pondering their next move when the first musket balls hit. Chaos ensued as the Arikara warriors mercilessly slaughtered Ashley's men who were out in the open on the beach from their hiding places just off the beach. They were using the same muskets that Ashley had traded to them just days before. It was over almost as quickly as it had began, the entire firefight lasting only about 15 minutes. Shocked by the ambush, Ashley and his men retreated along the river. When they had managed to gather themselves, they had lost 14 men. Now, six more are presumed dead on the Arikara's side, and then on top of that, 11 of Ashley's men were wounded, a fate that was almost as bad as death, considering that they're in the middle of what is now a hostile territory without any medical aid nearby. After the massacre on the beach, Ashley didn't feel safe, and he really felt that the only way to ensure his men's safety was to retaliate. But not all of his men agreed. A lot of them left, and they took one of the two keelboats that they had back downriver to St. Louis along with the wounded men. Letters were dispatched to everyone that they could think of, key among these being Colonel Henry Leavenworth at Fort Atkinson and the newspapers in St. Louis. One of these letters was written by Hugh Glass himself and was written to the family of one of the fallen men. It offers some insight into what was going through their heads at the time. It reads, and I quote, Dear Sir, my painful duty it is to tell you of the death of your son who befell at the hand of the Indians on this 2nd June in the early morning. He lived little while after he was shot and asked me to inform you of this, his sad fate. We brought him to the ship when he soon died. Mr. Smith, young man of our company, made powerful prayer who moved us all greatly and am persuaded John died in peace. His body we buried with others near this camp and marked the grave with a log. His things we will send to you. The savages are greatly treacherous. We traded with them as friends, but after a great storm of rain and thunder, they came at us before light and many were hurt. I myself was shot in the leg. Master Ashley is bound to stay in these parts till the traitors are rightly punished. Your servant, Hugh Glass. Now, as you can tell, obviously, Mr. Glass did not have the best grammar, um, but he was telling the story of how John Smith, one of the men in their company, had died. And so it would seem Ashley wanted revenge, but he couldn't do it on his own. So he found a spot some distance away from the Arikara village and made camp while he waited for help. They only had to wait for a couple of months when Colonel Leavenworth showed up with a force of about 900. It was a mixture of volunteers, militia, and Lakota, another Native American tribe. 
Hugh Glass was still healing from his injuries when he was shot in the leg, so he wasn't there when, on August 8th, Leavenworth and his force laid siege to the Arikara village. After about a day and a half of probing attacks, Leavenworth caused a controversy among his men when he called for a ceasefire and negotiated a peace with the Arikara leadership. You see, the men had wanted to make an example of the Arikaras. No one can kill Americans without punishment. And the Lakota tribe, which made up a majority of the force, they weren't happy either because they wanted glory in battle. So a lot of them deserted and left. Now, as Leavenworth went back to Fort Atkinson with the peace that he had negotiated, he turned to see smoke rising from beyond the trees behind them. Some of his men had gone against his orders and set fire to the Arikara village. Now, this would play in importantly because it essentially means that the Arikara did not have a home. After this conflict, Ashley thought of cutting their losses. It had proved to be too expensive, and he and his partner, Andrew Henry, were still paying their men, and they hadn't been trapping furs. The group ended up splitting in two, abandoning the Missouri River, and they were determined to head towards the Rocky Mountains. Ashley himself returned to St. Louis to handle some of their creditors, and Jedediah Smith took over for Ashley and led one of the groups. And then Henry took about the other half. It was about 50-50 that they took with the men. Hugh Glass was in Henry's group, about 30 men or so, and then for the next couple of months, Henry, Glass, and their group headed west. Some of these men ended up dropping out of the expedition as they passed various villages, meaning that the number dropped to about 15 by the time that they had reached the Grand River Valley in Colorado. In August of 1823, an event happened that changed Glass's life forever and eventually would win Leonardo DiCaprio his first Oscar. Glass was the hunter, so he would go off pretty often far ahead of the rest of the group so he could sneak up on animals that he'd kill for food. He didn't want the rest of the group making too much noise and scaring off the animals. Now, it was while he was hunting that Glass happened upon a couple animals he didn't expect. As he made his way through a shallow river to avoid letting animals smell his scent, he came across two bear cubs and their mother. The mother attacked, and after watching Leo get tossed around in Hollywood's version, I think we can all agree that the ensuing screams and noises had to have carried around the wilderness for quite a ways. Hearing his screams, the rest of the group hurried up to the scene where they were surrounded and managed to kill the bear. Remember, the same group had already encountered plenty of wounded men at the hand of the Arikara massacre a few months before. Now, without the hope of a keelboat to send down the river, Glass's situation seemed pretty dire. Henry and most of the group agreed that Glass would be dead by morning because of the wounds that he had been inflicted from the bear. But he wasn't. With unfriendly Native Americans around, the men certainly didn't want to wait for another Arikara incident or another ambush, so they couldn't really stay in one place for too long. Instead of leaving Glass alone to die, the men built a litter and carried Glass around with them for the next two days. But this really slowed them down, and Henry was afraid that they'd get blindsided by another attack. So after some debate, Henry offered an extra $80 to the first two men who'd be willing to stay with Glass until he passed. Now that's about $2,000 in today's money, and since everyone expected Glass to be dead any day, it's not surprising that they found these volunteers. It seemed like 
an easy way to make some quick money. Now, historians have long debated who the two volunteers were, but as best as documents show, it appears Hollywood did get this right. John Fitzgerald and Jane Bridger are most likely the two men that stayed with Glass. In the Revenant movie, Fitzgerald is played by Tom Hardy and Bridger is played by Will Poulter. So one day passed. Two days. Three days. Glass refused to die. Fitzgerald was getting a little antsy, not wanting to get ambushed by Native Americans again. On the fifth day, Fitzgerald convinced Bridger, who was much younger than him, that they'd done their duty. They earned the $80, and they stayed with Glass for a lot longer than anyone else would have. So they stripped Glass's body of his gun, knife, tomahawk, and fire-making kit. After all, a dead man won't need those. Setting his body next to a spring, the two left him there and made for a nearby fort. In Hollywood's version, it was witnessing but not being able to do anything about the murder of his son that caused Leonardo DiCaprio's version of Hugh Glass to have the will to come back from the land of the dead. Now, in truth, there's really no proof that Glass had a son, and without anyone else to corroborate his story, most of what happens after this point is solely reliant on Glass's own recounting. But he knew he was alone. He knew he was left to die. And that was enough to afford him the determination to start crawling. Inch by inch, foot by foot, he was driven to survive and get revenge. Minutes must have seemed like hours and hours must have seemed like days. As he crawled, he, he ate insects, snakes, and whatever else he could find in order to keep him alive. Now, we all saw the big screen rendition of Leo eating a bison liver in the movie, and as best as we can tell, this actually happened. Uh, about a week into his tediously slow trek across the wilderness, Glass witnessed some wolves killing a calf. He waited patiently until the wolves had eaten their fill, and then once they left, he took the carcass for his own. So he stayed there for a while until he had eaten the rest of the buffalo, which was about half of it that was left after, after the wolves were done. And then he used that time and the food to help regain his strength. After this event, he gained some much-needed energy and had some time to recuperate, so he was able to move a little bit faster. Now, soon after this, he reached the Missouri River where he ran into some Lakota men. Now, if you remember, the Lakota took part of in the siege against the Arikara. So they helped Glass by giving him a boat, and he used this boat to float down the river. In all, he had traveled from death's door in early September over 250 miles and against unbelievable odds. Now, in the middle of October 1823, Hugh Glass shocked everyone when he limped into Fort Kiowa to the southeast of where he was attacked. Glass stayed at Fort Kiowa for only two days. He bought a rifle and some ammunition and some other much-needed supplies on credit, which he had earned thanks to his association with Ashley's expedition. And then, after a couple days, he tagged along with a group that were heading back to attack the Arikara, which had continued to disrupt and cause tension with local traders. Now, what Glass didn't really care much for retaliation against the Arikara, he saw this as an opportunity to get to the nearby Fort Henry, and this is where he expected Fitzgerald and Bridger to be. 
glass had another stroke of good fortune. So as they were in a boat traveling down the Missouri River, nearing their destination, they came on a large bend. Strong winds made the travel really slow and tedious at this time. So instead of sticking with the group in the boat, he asked to go ashore when they hit the bend, deciding that he would take it on foot from there. Less than a day later, a band of Arikara warriors slaughtered everyone in the boat. Now later that same day, and unbeknownst to Glass of what had happened to the men in the boat, some Arikara women spotted Glass while they were gathering fire for or wood for fire. And they ran back to the village where a group of warriors were dispatched to kill Glass. Fortunately for Glass, a pair from the friendly Mandan tribe noticed the Arikara women raising the alarm and reached Glass first. They escorted him to the safety of the nearby Tilton trading post. Now, within the span of a day, Glass's life had been saved twice, and it was only when he arrived at the trading post that Glass learned of the slaughter at the river that he had just barely escaped. As if he was taunting fate, Glass waited around at the Tilton trading post for a couple of months until the weather got really bad, and in, towards the end of November, he left Tilton and made the 38-day walk across a frozen wilderness to Fort Henry. When he got there, it was empty. Now, from here, he actually went to the new Fort Henry. No one really knows how he knew where the new fort was located, but by historians' best guess, they figure that somebody must have left a note or some sort of indication that this is where the new fort is when they abandoned the old fort, almost like a forwarding address. Now, the new fort was almost due south by a couple hundred miles. However it happened, what we know is that on December 31st, 1823, Hugh Glass showed up at the new Fort Henry. And everyone was shocked because everyone there was in Henry's group and they, they knew that Glass was supposed to have been dead. After answering a barrage of questions, Glass had one of his own. Where are Fitzgerald and Bridger? Now, Fitzgerald wasn't at the fort anymore, but Bridger was, and one can only guess what it was like when Glass and Bridger finally met. After what must have been an intense discussion, Bridger convinced Glass that it was all Fitzgerald's idea. When he went into Fort Henry, I'm sure the former pirate Glass had an idea of what sort of revenge he would wanted to exact on Bridger. But coming out of it, he ended up forgiving the younger of the two men who had abandoned him and left him for dead just a few months before. Glass's journey wasn't over yet, and besides, Fitzgerald still had his gun, and he wanted that and the revenge. One thing that he did get from Bridger, though, was information. Fitzgerald was headed to Fort Atkinson, which was about a thousand miles to the east in what's now Nebraska. With winter in full swing, such a long trip wouldn't be easy to do, even for someone with Glass's knack for avoiding death. Not tempting fate any more than necessary, he hung out at Fort Henry until, at the end of February, he joined a team that was headed to a military outpost at the Council Bluffs of the Missouri River. Not long into this trip, this group was traveling down the river when they saw some Native Americans camped on the shore. Now, these Native Americans called out in the Pawnee language, inviting the men to come to shore. Since Glass had lived with the Pawnee, the group agreed to come ashore. They left one man in the boat with all the guns and then followed the Pawnee group into their village. 
Glass, who knew the Pawnee language, overheard the Native Americans talking, and they were speaking a different language. It was Arikara. They had been tricked. Glass warned his fellow travelers, and as soon as they found an opportunity, everyone ran for their lives. Then the Arikara pursued them and killed all but three, Glass being one of the survivors. Unfortunately, though, in the chaos that ensued, Glass was separated from the other two survivors, so as far as the other two were concerned, there were only two survivors. They really unknowingly left Glass behind, but unfortunately, yet again, Glass found himself alone in a hostile wilderness, surrounded by enemies, without a gun, and hundreds of miles away from help. This time, though, Glass still had his knife and fire-making tools, and of course he wasn't injured as severely as he was when uh, he was attacked by the bear, so he took this as a good sign and continued on. He did abandon his old path, though, and decided to head to the closest fort that he knew of, Fort Kiowa in what's modern-day South Dakota. Now, this was the same place and the same fort that he had staggered into the last year after being left alone last time. Being in much better health than the last time he was on his own, he made much better time. Within a couple months, he made it to Fort Kiowa, where he learned that John Fitzgerald had joined the army and was garrisoned at Fort Atkinson. And so it was in the middle of a hot June day, this is about 10 months after being left for dead in the wilderness, that Hugh Glass arrived at Fort Atkinson. He was there for one reason, and he made it clear. Now, the U.S. Army captain got in the way of Glass's revenge. Since Fitzgerald had joined the Army, he was property of the government, and the captain wouldn't let Glass see him, insisting that he first tell the captain why he was so anxious to take out one of his soldiers. Glass's telling of his story must have been quite something to behold, and when he was done laying it all out, the captain didn't budge. He must have believed him, though, because he did give Glass his gun back. But he told Glass to forget any ideas about revenge against Fitzgerald for as long as Fitzgerald was in the army. And so his revenge would have to wait. And wait. Days turned into weeks. Weeks turned into months. And months into years. All the while, Glass waited for his revenge. And while he waited, Glass did what he did best as a hunter and trapper. Years later, along with a man by the name of Helene Menard and Edward Rose, who was actually the man who escaped the Arikara village earlier in our story, they the three went on a trapping expedition near Fort Cass, just a few short miles north of Fort Henry, when they were ambushed by a party of Arikara warriors. In the winter of 1833, Hugh Glass died a violent death alongside his two fellow trappers at the hand of the Native Americans who had so often failed to bring him down over the years. Shortly after killing Glass, Rose, and Menard, the Arikara party stumbled upon another camp of trappers. They pretended to be another tribe, and since it was winter and very cold outside, they were invited to warm themselves by the campfire. While doing so, the trappers noticed something odd. They noticed that the Arikaras had Glass's gun. Not only that, but they were also carrying possessions that they knew to be owned by Rose and Menard. It didn't take long for the trappers to turn on the Arikara and capture them. Their leader, the leader of the trappers, was a man by the name of Johnson Gardner. 
and he had a mind of his own for revenge. Seeing the possessions of his friends and knowing what this meant, Gardner ordered the Arikaras scalped and then burned alive. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. If you want to learn more about the life of Hugh Glass, many of the facts in this episode come from the Museum of the Mountain Man's website at hughglass.org. There you'll find his story, a timeline, and a map showing where all of these events took place. Thank you for listening to the first episode of the Based on a True Story podcast. Based on a True Story is on the web at basedonatruestorypodcast.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. Drop by, say hi, and let me know what you think.